the really great companies, like the, the really meaningful stuff takes f-ing forever. If you look at OpenAI, those guys were just grinding in obscurity for a while. Like a lot of people saying that that wasn't going to work. Like it was like, what, six or seven years before ChatGPT. That's like what it takes. Same thing, like if you look at Microsoft, same way, Amazon, early days, right? Like, like you just have, like the big ideas, like if, the th- if you feel like the thing you're doing is going to work out real quick, it's probably not that important. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is both personally and professionally to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks. How has this last year been? How are you over these last year or two? Like, if the volatility of the company, meaning from the outside looking in, has anything to do with how you, like, if what I can see from this roller coaster ride, which is insane, is anything like you feel on the inside, that would be too much for any man to bear. Like being a public company and then going through all of this right now, it's insane, isn't it? Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm like, so, so I mean, Giga was a private company for a long time, right? So we yeah. started the company in 2008. We bootstrapped for five years where we had uh, basically no money, no venture capitalists would invest in us. We were buying all our equipment on eBay. Then we did YC in 2014 and sort of scaled there more like a traditional growth company. It's so much more relaxing than the first five years of Ginkgo. Like, I can't even tell you. Really? <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. I, mean, I think when you're like a founder of a company and you've been with it from the points of time where it was like really at where things were really like always on the edge, not, nothing is like that again after you get the ball rolling. You, you have more external scrutiny, but like when you're in the seat, external opinion is not what matters, right? Like what matters is is like the reality. And so you feel that more viscerally. We've been through a lot of Ginkgo. So yeah, this stuff is actually relatively easy in comparison. The first like five years or so when you're kind of like toiling away in relative obscurity or absolute obscurity, you know, is uh, you're kind of just doing your own thing. Juxtaposed to today, when you're a public company, the largest bio IPO ever, like it's just going from one to another. Yeah. I guess I'm a little surprised to hear that it's this is chill, relatively speaking. It's kind of funny, right? Like the, a few things that surprised me about taking the company public. People sort of assume that your life is dominated by what investors think or the share price or something like that. But I think if you're, again, if you're a founder-led company that more or less knows what you want to do, you're very insulated from that stuff, right? I, I think that the reality is like in a traditional company, you know, you bring in a CEO, you know, they're a hired gun. Their job is to do X or Y, whatever, three-year period or maybe a five-year period on the outside because that's as long as they're going to work anywhere in that role. They are very much like driven by the spirits of whatever the hell is happening in, in the moment in the stock market or whatever. But I'm sure that's not how it felt at Microsoft. I'm sure it's not how it felt at Amazon even in 99, you know, right? Like the companies that are actually like trying to do a big thing over a long period of time led by people with a long-term vision, like... They just don't give a shit about that stuff. That's just the reality. They need to care if there's something that puts in danger the fundamental objective, right? You know, like the fundamental objective is to build a huge company that makes biology easier to engineer at Ginkgo. If something was actually putting that in jeopardy, I'd have to freak out. But 
external noise doesn't put that in jeopardy, right? It puts yeah. it in jeopardy if you need to raise money and you can't, right? Which is not our situation. It puts it in jeopardy if your customers aren't happy with you, which ours are fine, right? Like, like there's various things that actually put it in jeopardy, but like that whole like kind of like that other stuff is just not it in a company like this. I do think it happens though. You see it a lot with like more hired gun leadership where they're just like chickens with their heads cut off responsive to like the kind of flavor of the week stuff. But yeah. it's just less, I think it's less the case when you have a founder led company. Yeah. When you were growing, is this the story that you've recreated because it fits so perfectly into the Ginkgo narrative? When you were young, you used to watch Jurassic Park. Is that actually true? Well, yeah. I mean, when I'm that generation, right? So I think Jurassic Park came out in like 94 or something, right? And I was yeah. 13 years old. And, and, you know, it's funny, like I was at a meeting with um, Feng Zhang, who was like one of the inventors of CRISPR, uh, the guy on the MIT side of the house. He was on stage like, oh, what got you into all this stuff? And he's like, oh, Jurassic Park. Because so there's a whole generation of like bioengineers that are now in their kind of early 40s that are, I'm telling you, it's like nine out of 10 are a product of Jurassic Park. Because things like that inspire you, right? You know, like you, you have this moment as a kid. And then, you know, it has to then be a thing. Like I'm sure there was other things also that happened around then yeah. that could have inspired me in different directions. And I didn't find that it was like a, an area that also like caught my interest, but this did. And then it was just good timing, right? Like you, we, it was kind of like this, the, I mean, I can tell you more of the story, but like, you know, from there I was able to keep doubling down on that. But yeah, that was how it started. Why is that the inspiration for those listening to Ginkgo today? Like how, how do those two things fit together? Look, let me explain what Ginkgo is because most people in, yeah. in tech world have no idea. Dude, right? you might be the coolest, least well-known company that I've ever studied. <laughs> Yes. And there are a variety of reasons for that, actually. But people don't realize just how much software has taken over venture. When people think tech, when they think venture capital, when they think fast growing companies, they just think software, 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 software. Anything that's, it's not just Ginkgo, like literally any interesting company, even think of the early days of like EVs, right? Like there was years where people didn't know, sort of Tesla was like some bullshit. And look what Elon's had to do to just get anything that's not software onto the radar. He has to like literally act like a crazy person all the time. So you have this like myopicness in the tech community that really orients on software. So we aren't well well known. We don't make software, but we do program. So we program DNA is the idea behind Ginkgo. And the way you can get this in your head is you don't have to be a biologist to understand this. But if you remember high school biology, if inside of every cell, which is like the fundamental building block of all the biology out in the world, is a piece of DNA code, every single one. And that DNA code defines what that cell does. It defines how it builds itself. It defines what it eats and what it turns the things it eats into and all that. All the functions of biology are, are at the end of the day encoded in that DNA code. And the magic is, even though it's ATCs and Gs instead of zeros and ones, it's a, like a linear, effectively digital code. That's crazy, right? Like you have a physical substrate, right? In other words, a thing that grows and breathes and moves that's encoded digitally. Your car is not really encoded digitally. Like I can't go in there and change a bit and the wheels change color automatically. That is how biology works. It is encoded digitally in the physical realm. And so a lot of what we're trying to do at Ginkgo and in the broader field of synthetic biology is to bring a lot of the learnings from programming code in the world of computers, which is virtual, right? It's all about bits into programming in the world of atoms via biology. And so that that's what we do at Ginkgo. And our business model taking a page from tech is very much like an Amazon Web Services. We build and we can get into the technology, but I got 300,000 square feet of highly automated robotic labs. They look cool as hell that are basically building DNA, putting it into a cell's genome, testing what it does so that our DNA programmers 
can design cells for customers. You know, we work with uh, Nova Nordisk and Merck and uh, Biogen on developing, we used to deal with Pfizer for RNA drug discovery for drug cell programming. But we also work with uh, Bayer, Syngenta, Corteva, the largest ag biotechs in the world for programming DNA for plants and agriculture. And we work with fragrance companies to program cells for making fragrances. And we work with cannabis companies, engineering yeast cells to make cannabinoids. You can like brew cannabinoids like you would brew a beer. All of those are are like apps. And we're sort of an AWS behind the scenes that lets those companies program cells for all those applications. That's the business of Ginkgo. And when it comes to Jurassic Park, I can get into that in a second, but does that make sense on, yeah, on, yeah, the, on like on like the general business from like a tech putting a tech filter on it for a minute? It does make you know, sense. Bio people don't like when I describe it that way; they're much more like biology purists. But like for a tech person, that that's probably the best way to think about ginkgo. Yeah, it does make sense. Go into the Jurassic Park thing. All right, okay, I'll give you Jurassic Park. Come so, on. So Jurassic Park's the greatest uh, movie about biotechnology ever made. Although there's a new movie called Vesper that like nobody has seen. It's like kind of like a huh. low budget, really cool, arty movie that is freaking amazing. I highly recommend it. It's like the best thing I've seen since Jurassic Park. So if you're like a kid today and you see Vesper, uh, you're going to end up being a bioengineer. Uh, I highly recommend it. But anyway, Jurassic Park, why is it the greatest movie for biotechnology? It, it does two things that are really important to communicate about what's so amazing about bioengineering. The first is wonder for biology. Okay, like remember that scene where they like pull up on a hill and like Grant like sticks his head out of the Jeep and he looks out and there's like brontosauruses like over by this lake and he puts his glasses up and it's just like, you can't believe it. It's, it's a dinosaur. Uh -huh. <laughs> you did. You crazy son of a bitch, you did. The thing about biology is because it's everywhere, we take it for granted. The air you breathe, is it produced by the United States Air Manufacturing Company? No. No, it's literally you need it every minute of your life. And it's produced by the biology on the planet without even a thought, with no re nobody regulating that, nobody controlling it, no one in charge of it, no one managing supply chains. Like literally the air you and your family and everybody you love breathes every day, just provided by ecosystem services from biology the food you eat, right? Half of your medicines, right? Like all these things, like biology is like doing all this like really fundamental stuff on the planet. And we just are like, oh, whatever. It's not important. There's a, a weird blindness to the intrinsic power of the substrate of biology because humans didn't invent it. And we're so self-centered, unless it's something we made, it must not be a big deal. And so one of the cool things about Jurassic Park is it wakes people up. Holy shit, dinosaurs, right? Like, holy shit, biology, right? So that's point number one. And then the second thing that, that it gets right is what's the most famous line? Life uh, finds a way. So it also makes a statement to the bioengineers that are watching me at 13 and, and now everybody since that you didn't invent biology. Okay. You need to have humility in the face of it as you start to work directly with it by engineering the DNA code because life will find a way. It will do things you don't expect. It's not a computer. And so that's actually a really important message as the tools for programming DNA have just improved exponentially since 1994. I mean, that book, you know, Crichton's a genius, but like Jurassic Park was built on the technology of cut and paste DNA. Take a gene and move it from one place to another. We use the complete DNA of a frog to fill in the holes and complete the code. And now we can make a baby dinosaur. 
that technology had just come out, like, you know, early 80s, Genentech, human insulin. I can tell you the whole story. But, like, it was infantile when that movie came, you know, really, in terms of what compared to what you can do today, not even close. So, but that message was already there, day one. Life will find a way. Be humble, bio designers. Like, that, I think, is a really important message. So, it gets it right, right out of the gate. Really amazing. Was there like a technology, and again, like, excuse my ignorance here, because um, not my domain, much to my mother's chagrin, my, both my mom and stepdad are PhDs in biology and chemistry, oh. uh, respectively, and at my dinner table when I was growing up, the only thing that they would talk about is f***ing science, and I actually grew to hate it, oh, unfortunately. Sorry. So maybe this will be their favorite episode, but they'll also be embarrassed by my lack of knowledge. <laughs> was there a breakthrough that enabled a company like this to exist? Yeah, yeah, let me give, I'll give you like a quick yeah, please. dime tour of, of biotechnology, all right? So, so mid-century, we discovered DNA, right? We discover it. I mean, we, we like humans figure out that inside of every cell is DNA code, okay, right? So, so just know that we haven't even, that wasn't even run to ground, right? That like the hereditary material and the structure of DNA, remember Watson and Crick and that whole thing, till middle of last century. 1978, Herbert Boyer, Stanley Cohen invent what's called recombinant DNA. And what this is, just to explain it, there's like basically three technologies that came together. This allowed for all the biotechnology companies of the 80s and 90s. Genentech, Biogen, Monsanto, all, all of this, okay, came downstream of, of like these three things happening in the late 70s, early 80s, okay? The first was a biological discovery. And this was done at Harvard, and it was discovery of the operon. So it's a very sciencey term, but it's basically how in a bacteria, a gene gets turned on or off. What is the on switch for a gene? What makes something turn on in a cell? All right. It was a biological learning. So that's an important point because a lot of bioengineering is studying biology, not just humans inventing shit. Okay. This makes it very different than other engineering fields like computer science. Computer science, everything we invent ourselves. We didn't invent the operon. We had to go discover the operon. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. That's invention number one. Okay. Invention number two, PCR, polymerase chain reaction. So this basically allows you to choose a section of DNA and make many copies of it, billions and billions of copies. Okay. And it's a little trick. I'm not going to get into the, the exact details, but you can use the mechanism that cells already use to copy their DNA because every time a cell makes a baby cell, it's got to make a copy of the DNA, right? So you hack that mechanism identify just a small region of the DNA and make a billion copies of it. That's PCR. And then the third technology is called restriction enzymes. This is again, not invented by humans, discovered by humans. It was something that bacteria use to protect themselves. So if you try to infect a, a bacteria with a virus, the bacteria would chop up the DNA of the virus. Well, those little chops that it makes leave little overhangs that are like little sticky ends of the DNA. And so here was the genius of Genentech, and yeah, out in San Francisco, right? Founded by Boyer and crew. They identified the gene for human insulin in a human cell. They used PCR to make billions of copies of it in a, in a tube. They used restriction enzymes to cut the ends of it and leave little sticky bits. And then they went to a bacteria, E. coli, found the uh, an operon, a little on switch, and cut right behind it and stuck in that human insulin gene. And suddenly, in a bacterial tank in South San Francisco, you were producing human fucking insulin without a human because they had cut and pasted the gene from the human into a bacteria, and then they grew it in a tank like you would at a brewery, 
it had the on switch and it was making the human gene and voila, out comes insulin protein. Okay. My dad's a type one diabetic. Like he was there for that transition. Like he was a, you know, like, like he got insulin from pigs, which is where we got it from before until Genentech. That set of technologies was the birth of biotech. That was the beginning. What was being able to cut and paste a gene from one species to another. And they found the first commercial application was making these human proteins that people with these diseases were missing. And then that kicked off everything. Okay. So I can talk about what we have today, but does that make sense in terms of like what the very beginning was driven by? It does make sense. Also, fun fact, Kleiner Perkins, I think, led the Series A of Genentech. Sure did. Yeah. And Gingo, today, you know, our, we, you know, we have the DNA ticker. So like that used to be Genentech's ticker. On the stock exchange. Yeah. When Roche bought them on New York Stock Exchange. Yeah. When, when Roche bought Genentech, the ticker goes back to the stock exchange. So we, awesome. we got it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> awesome. Oh, yeah. Trust me. I, I, Genentech is like, they're the best. They were the OG original biotech. They, you know, they invented the whole thing. But that, 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 those are the technologies that came together. Yeah, that's super helpful. Can I rewind to something? You said that there's like a variety of reasons why you're not well known. It felt like there was something behind that. I, I don't, maybe not, but this incredibly undiscovered but cool thing. And maybe the answer is like, uh, maybe the answer is Jubin, you live in your Silicon Valley bubble. And outside of that, everybody knows us. Maybe there's nothing there, but. No, no, it's a, it's great. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I'll give you my general uh take on this stuff. So, well, A, consumer goods are like the things that people get the most touch on. No one really knows about AI until ChatGPT. I think one of the issues is like up till now, the cost of doing biotechnology work, which is by the way, a big thing of what we're trying to bring that cost down at Ginkgo. Just like Amazon Web Services reduced the cost to launch a website by centralizing infrastructure where you used to have to build a, you know, I don't know, spend five or 10 million bucks on a server farm, hire all these IT people to just to launch your website. And that turned into a $200,000 AWS contract to get off the ground, if that. That transition has not happened in biotech. It still costs five or $10 million to try anything. So as a result, you don't get people playing around with the consumer applications. Mm. everything is like a drug, right? Or like, uh, you know, like it's, it's like all this like very heavy, long time cycle, further away from people stuff. Like you don't get as much of like the magic of the early web and all that kind of, or early apps on the iPhone, like all that stuff yeah. that's just sort of like just people playing. Like we don't get to play much yet. Yeah. The analogy that you would draw is like if Amazon is a sandbox for technologists to go innovate with yep. a really low lift, the analog of that in the science world doesn't really exist. And so it's a small handful of large pharma companies that have to go through a bunch of R&D. They have to go through all of their own cycles of process and reviews and all that. And then finally, they get into a lab space, they get all the drugs together, they get the team together, and it already has cost a bunch of money before they've even really gotten past go. Yes. I think that's a big part of the reason why like people feel like they can't participate in it in the way they can participate in software. You have le less entrepreneurs because it's like the barrier is too high mm -hmm. and you have just less creativity in the product. People just can't take the risk. So you get your products in a, in a more narrow window. That said, if the technology really gets hot, you know, like I have a great, I don't have it with me, unfortunately, I'm traveling, but, but the, uh, at home, I have a uh, old time magazine from 1981 and on the cover, 
is Herbert Boyer, the founder of Genentech. And the guy's like ridiculous. He's got like mustache, crazy hair, the whole thing is like crazy DNA behind him on the cover. And literally in the top right corner, like in a little like fold down picture mm-hmm. is like Princess Diana got engaged. So like Herbert Boyer was like, you know, like, like Genentech at that time, it mm. was it was in the popular mindset because like it was such a new breakthrough technology and it was going to train. So, so I don't want to also say that it's even, even if it's in pharmaceuticals, like we can have those moments when a technology really breaks through. It, it just hasn't quite, like I think we're getting closer to it now with what, what we're seeing with synthetic biology. Like we're seeing now when you see like the government talk about like what are strategic technologies for the US, it's like AI, chips, quantum, synthetic biology. We're like in the bucket. But we haven't had our ChatGPT moment. Neither has Quantum. Okay, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so like we're kind of like hanging around the hoop. If a breakthrough pops off, we're pretty damn close. That would do it. Or some consumer product, right? Like something yeah. magical. I saw this thing on Twitter yesterday. This guy had done a, at home, he made a, a gene edit. to. There's a plant called Arabidopsis. Okay, right? It's like this little flowering. Mm. You would never, you wouldn't see it at the garden store. But scientists like to work with it because it's very easy to manipulate its DNA. So this guy, he puts in a gene that makes this normally white flower pink. And then he crosses it. This is all being done in like a lab to mix it with a version that like puts more petals on the flower. And he basically turns this kind of janky looking white flower into something that looks like a pink rose in like a two month period. First of its kind flower. That's pretty cool. You know, right? Like like you might want to give one of those to your significant other, like to be able to design flowers, right? Like a living thing. That would be unimaginable to the agricultural engineers of 20 years ago, like lunacy. Like, I'm sorry, what? Like a person two months in their basement could do that? Like, what are you talking about? The distance we've traveled is quite far, but those sort of like playful applications, I think are what is part of why you don't see, we don't have enough of that stuff. So that's another reason I think it's a little behind the scenes. You can still build a big business, B2B, you know, right? Like how many people know about Stripe? It's kind of hiding back there doing pretty damn well, right? But like the average person has no idea what Stripe is, right? So so you can be behind the scenes and still do well, but it it just, I think it would help biotech for more of those consumer things to be out there. Yeah. So you think the chat GPT moment for biotech could be something like one of your customers is Voodoo or something. Yeah, that's a fun one. What they're trying to do is take the bite out of alcohol. If I'm not yeah. mistaken, you tell me if I'm yeah. wrong, but it's like if you were to like take a shot of vodka, what they want to do is not burn, right? Not yeah. burn. Something like that, I imagine, totally. would be the type of thing that would capture the zeitgeist and imagination of folks towards a space like this. Yes, absolutely. And there's a, actually a really cool project, that, speaking of Jurassic Park, that I like a lot. So there's a company called Archaea, and they have just launched, it, it, I think it just went on sale like a month ago in Nordstrom's. The brand is called Future Society. And what they did was they, and their customer of ours, this partnership with us, they were flour, it was a hibiscus, that went extinct in Hawaii in the 1850s. Before it goes extinct, somebody, some like, you know, biologist collects a sample and it ends up in the museum at Harvard, okay? And it's dried down and in a, in a drawer. After that, you know, a lot of people move to Hawaii, lots of things. And, you know, like we do a lot of ecological destruction there. This plant goes extinct. So scientists at Ginkgo goes, collects a little sample. We get permission from Harvard to do this. Get a little sample of that flower from the herbarium. Grinds it up, puts it into what's called a DNA sequencer. So a DNA sequencer, remember the Human Genome Project? Like 2000, got done, we read the Human Genome. That 
human genome costs $100 million to sequence that first human genome in 2000. There's now machines today, $100 to $200 for a human genome. One million fold cost reduction in the last 20 years. All right. So just to be clear, that like completely kills Moore's law, like way faster improvement than computers. But we grind it up and you put the cell into one of these genome sequencers. Because remember, even though these things got built for human DNA, guess what? All DNA is the fucking same. We run on the same low level architecture as flowers. All right. So you can grind that cell up, put it in that same kind of, it's big washing machine sized device and out on your computer screen, A, T, C, G, 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 C, C, start coming up. It's the code of that extinct flower because this thing is only, you know, whatever, a hundred year old sample, 250 year old sample. The DNA is fine on that time scale. It lasts that long. So now I've got the code for the flower. And what we do is we look in that code to find the part of the genome that encodes the fragrance. Okay, because there's certain enzymes, these little proteins inside your cells that do chemistry to make molecules that the flower emits and then they hit your nose and that's the smell. So we find that DNA code. We redesign it a little on the computer to make it work in a yeast or bacteria like Genentech would have used to make that insulin. We print the DNA. So it's a thing called a DNA printer. You go ATCGGGG. There's a company out in California that's the biggest printer in the world called Twist. You print the DNA, you get it, they send it to us, and we install it into that yeast. So you open the genome up. Remember those restriction enzymes for insulin, something similar. I mean, you can use CRISPR today, but you open the genome up and you install that code from the flower. Now, when you brew this yeast up, instead of making beer, it makes the scent of this extinct flower. So we can't bring the flower yet back. We don't have like flower Jurassic Park just yet. That's like out of our skill set, but we can do like Jurassic Park for fragrances. And so Arkea launched, uh, I think, five different fragrances at, with Future Society that are five different extinct flowers where they brought back the scent and then they work with perfumers to uh, design a scent around it. That's so wild. Like a, like a commercial fragrance. And they just, I mean, this, this is like a brand new product, like in the last 30 days. That kind of stuff is cool, right? That's a story that, it's like a one-of-a-kind fragrance, right? Like it's from an extinct plant. No one else can have it, right? So, so there's kind of like a cool thing where biotech is actually enabling a new story in fragrances, which is a market that like struggles for new stories, right? That's why you see so many like, you know, different celebs all hot, you know, pushing fragrances. Like, well, what else do you got? What else do you have to offer, right? And so this is actually like a pretty cool new, new story. So I love to see stuff like that. I, I think that's the kind of thing that really helps ultimately get people to like know about this technology. What's something you believe that most people wouldn't? Well, that's a good question. Um, well, there's probably a lot of different things. I was going to say, you have to probably whittle it down because I have a feeling that there's quite a few things that you see in the future that you think most people would think is well, crazy. Maybe I'll, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll talk for a minute. Like, since I know there's like a lot of entrepreneurs and, and folks in that community that listen into this. So maybe I'll talk about like some things I think about like differently than the entrepreneur world. One of the things I would say is I think the really great companies, like the really meaningful stuff takes forever. So I think a lot of the community has sort of gotten focused on really quick cycle time, really quick ramp, like da da da. But like, like, like let's take the latest one that everyone, we, we, we did Y Combinator summer 14. It was mm -hmm. right when Sam Altman had taken over. Okay. Right. So he had like, just as the new president, he wanted to do not just software YC, but biotech and nuclear energy companies were in our batch, Helion. And so he wrote this blog post 
that was like, I want YC to do like biotech. I was like, oh, thank God. Like somebody like if you're not doing a drug, no one will fund you in biotech. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I was like, oh, hey, like thank you for writing this. Like we're too late. You know, we've been around for four years or something. But thanks at least for writing the blog post. And Sam's like, no, no, you got to talk. And so I went out and I met him and he's an amazing sales guy. And anyway, we, he, was, he was like, you know, I was like, oh, yeah, I got to do YC. It's great. So, so we did YC, you know, and I got to know Sam. And if you look at OpenAI, those guys were just grinding in obscurity for a while. Like a lot of people saying that that wasn't going to work. Like it was like, what, six or seven years before mm-hmm. ChatGPT. That's like what it takes. Same thing, like if you look at Microsoft, same way, Amazon, early days. The big ideas, like if, the th- if you feel like the thing you're doing is going to work out real quick, it's probably not that important. That would be one of my controversial ideas. It's a very, very good one. But nobody wants to do that, right? Like the- Why not? Because they, they think if it's not going well quickly, it's lame or something. There, there's a sort of like a sense that if you were better, you could get into the like thing that's going quicker or something mm. like that. And and I and I just don't think that's true. It's actually harder to grind on the shit where you have to just really believe that you're right and you're not actually getting a lot of good external feedback that you're right. Like that back to your question at the beginning, like why is it easy for the, the founding team to like at Ginkgo, for example, to shake off like if people don't like what we're doing or whatever? Because that's like how it's always been. <laughs> right? Like, like, like from the beginning, it's always been like, ah, oh, this will never work. I actually think that that's tougher because you aren't getting the like positive feedback loop. But I, I would argue, don't get discouraged by that. Like that, in my opinion, actually means you're probably working on a more important thing. When you were starting Ginkgo, it was you and what, four co-founders from MIT? Yep. Yep. All biological, all PhDs in some version of science. Yeah. Yeah. So there's four of us that were uh, grad students together and then one MIT professor. And so we had three computer scientists, a mechanical engineer and a chemical engineer that were all like doing biology, PhD kind of stuff. And it's actually a a unique story. The the first five years before YC, which again, I I don't know how many companies join YC after being in existence for five years. What was that? Those first five years, when we talk about like toiling in obscurity, how obscure are we talking here and how much toiling? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, let, let me give a little bit of extra, again, some, some other like opinions I would have that other people don't. So number one, I think like more founders is great. Like Ginkgo wouldn't exist if we hadn't had five founders like like that. Hmm. There was a lot of support there. And I'll get to early employees in a second too, because like we brought in people who were like amazing and, and have been with us for a decade now, you know, um, mm-hmm. but in those, in those first four years, like the five of us were, were like the group that was like through it. Um, and so I think like having more helps, we split things evenly. That's another thing like you'll, you often won't see like across the founding team. Yeah. Even split on equity, same salaries, all the same. Cause I think people often try to do some like bullshit calculus about who's contributing what or something or like there's a problem, which is I think some of the people that are like m- going to be most successful at being entrepreneurs, just they have to be like gamey. They got to like be good at playing the game. They got to understand value and value capture and da, 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 da. And, and, and it's the kind of thing that like if you run your whole life like that, you're an asshole. Well, can I spit back to you how yeah, I understand yeah, what you're well, saying? Yeah, that's controversial opinion. So no, I don't disagree because I, I see this all the time. I think the way that I see it unfold is that most founders are first principle thinkers. And there's some things in your business that you have to be first principled about. But there's other things that you don't have to re-engineer from the ground up. I had the COO of Stripe on the show a while ago. And, you know, Patrick and John were trying to re-architect, I think it was their recruiting process or something. And she's like, oh, they wanted to rebuild basically like the software 
that does the recruiting. She's like, you can do that. Like, you can definitely do that. But isn't our time better spent, like, worrying about the other things? And I think sometimes the founder can't help themselves because it's like, you know, I see dead people. Like, they just see dead people everywhere. And so they want to just fix problems wherever they see it because that's just in their nature. It's a general predisposition towards being dissatisfied. And so wanting to go fix things is, I think, fairly ubiquitous in great founders. However, knowing the right things to optimize for, I think, is probably... Maybe just reading back to you what you're saying to me. So yes, I agree. One of the best pieces of advice we got early on was like doing something innovative creates risk. And you can only compound so many risks in your company before the fucking wheels come off the bus. Mm. And so make sure that when you're innovating, it's in the areas where you need to, especially for like something like what we were doing, which was like aggressive hard tech. Or I like to call it real tech, real tech innovation on the biology side of all the things we were doing were really fundamentally different ways to do the work. We were innovating like crazy over here. Well, for example, we don't innovate in management. Totally. Right? Like I'm not trying to be like the Zappos guy or something. You know, like, like I'm, I'm not trying to reinvent me. I have this conversation all the time. I get go. Like it has to be important enough to like bother to do something new. The point I was making though there about like the gaminess and like companies are made out of people. And there's a little bit of an attitude where people try to apply the same sort of like raw economic modularization to the humans at the company that they apply to, say, the supply chain and the efficiency of the unit ops and their process and all the other stuff. And like, that's a, it's just a shitty way to live. And I actually personally don't think it creates a better company. I think it's a big part of the reason tech culture is so transactional, you know, like people stay at companies for like two years and it's like, get my three years, invest and pop, you know, right? Because that's like how you maximize it. And like, oh, isn't that obvious? Like you're a fool not to do it. It's like, well, maybe. I mean, like, I, I like that I've worked with people for a decade. Like I'm really close with these people. I just think people forget that part of it. And again, you still need to be able, you know, like, listen, you need to be able to like get rid of low performers. If, you, if the company needs it, you need to be able to do a layoff. Like I'm firmly in the Patrick Hollis and other folks will explain like, hey, a company's not a family. I agree with that. But it's still humans. Like it's still fucking human. And so like another thing we do, and I'm a big proponent of, which is again, maybe difference of opinion, is worker ownership. So like when we were a private company, we're, we were a founder started company. We had those five years so we, we, and we didn't take venture. We basically did YC and then growth. So we owned a lot of the company and we had a lot of the board seats and things like that. So, but when we took the company public, we had to think about, hey, how do we want to run this thing as a public company? And as a public company, it's very interesting. Corporate governance, very clear. You've got shareholders who have votes. And once a year, there's like a big shareholder vote. And depending on how your charter is set up, some number of your board members, or maybe all of your board is up for vote. And the shareholders vote yes or no on the board. Okay. And then that's the board. And then the board basically is the one who decides yes or no on the CEO and senior management, right? Like they can hire and fire senior management and senior management can hire and fire everybody else. Thus flows corporate power from the shareholders. And so this is like obvious, like once you spend time on it, and it's why Zuckerberg, Sergey and Larry, like why everybody did super voting is because the founders in those companies wanted to have, they wanted to make sure that they had shareholder vote so that they could, as founder-led management, operate on a longer time horizon or a variety of reasons that they were in the long-term interest of shareholders, but might have a difference of opinion with like a short-term shareholder. And there's a lot of law around like, yep, you can do things that are in the interest long-term of shareholders, even if people in the short-term don't like it. That's like the origin of like super voting shares among founders. And a lot of Silicon Valley companies do this and it comes and goes depending on market conditions. So what Gingo's doing is we've extended that same super voting, not just to the founders, we get it for our shares, but actually all the employees. 
So if you are an employee of the company, you have a, and this is pretty common, like a 10x vote relative to a share that's held by an external party. And if you quit or are fired, like if you leave the company, your shares switch to the 1x voting. Okay. So we've taken that same mentality of like founders should be able to have like a longer term, have a longer term vision and have like actual power in a public company via their votes and extended that to all the employees. That view is derived from us having five founders at the beginning and being like, we founders, our human relationship matters as much as our business relationship. It's not like the business relationship just totally dominates the human relationship, nor does the human relationship dominate the business one, right? Like if one of you is sucking, you're going to get fired, right? But they're like more of a peer. We sort of extended that mindset across the entire employee base. I think it gets people thinking long-term. It gets people staying at the company long-term. You know, it's just a lot of, a lot of things I think are important. I read that the New York Stock Exchange said it's the most people that they've ever had an IPO. They've ever seen in an IPO. Is that true? Yeah. That is true. That's what they told us. Yeah. That's pretty cool. You can only get like, I think you can get like 300 people inside the building. And then we had like a giant crowd outside the building. Like it was, yeah, it was really cool. Why'd you take the company public? Oh, so just to just take a minute about Gingo's business, right? So we were like, a, again, like an AWS, like a platform service provider. Our customers, and this varies like in a ZERP, in a zero interest rate phenomena environment, you've got a lot more money going into small companies. And so we actually had a lot of startup company customers throughout the history of Ginkgo. But in the last couple of years in particular, big companies, big biopharma, big bioag, big chemical are some of our bigger customers today. And it helps to sell to those companies if you are public. They can look at your books. They understand your state. You're not like the latest startup company that's coming to talk to them. I think this actually helped Amazon with AWS is because behind AWS was Amazon. And so as these people were thinking about multi-year, oh, I'm going to move this thing to the cloud and what, you know, they, they weren't like, oh, it's going to evaporate on me because Amazon was there. Imagine a counterfactual with like a totally brand new startup trying to convince everybody to run shit on their servers while you're simultaneously worried that that company's going to be out of business in two years. Mm. Good luck. So one of the reasons we did it was it was a, it helped buttress us when we were engaging with customers in terms of we're going to be around. Second was like, we're capital hungry business. Again, just so you know how the technology works for a minute. When I did my PhD at MIT, you want a PhD in bioengineering, it's five years of like moving little clear liquids around a lab bench with a pipette, which is kind of like a very fancy straw. All right. We have taken the, the, all that infrastructure, like the, the liquid handling, all the works, and it's all on robotics. I can go. So that is a huge lift. Like we spent probably half a billion dollars on our physical infrastructure and software at the company. And we want to keep doing that. Because I want to make those big investments, just like AWS would invest in a data center, so yeah. my customers get a lower unit cost for their lab work. That costs capital. We're also just like in the way like a Tesla would be, same thing, right? Like, why does Tesla need to raise so much money? You can't make cheap cars and batteries without giant facilities. So there's just a big upfront capital thing, and it doesn't scale like software, where like all the money comes in right alongside the scaling. You got to build the facility to get to the new unit economic. And so- yeah. So we kind of didn't, I didn't want to fly close to the wire. And we saw that, you know, there's an opportunity to go public and raise, you know, like you said, biggest IPO, we raised 1.6 billion, right? So that really, I mean, I'm glad we did because we're in like a very strong position and now a tight capital market environment because we did that. So like, those are the strategic reasons. Now, did I know that, you know, the Fed was going to come down on interest Money rates? Money wasn't going to be free. Everyone was going to go crazy about growth. That's right. Know, like, that's that the- part sucked. But like, again, on the merits... Like, it sucks for me personally. I'm a huge shareholder in the company, right? Like, you know, like all that sucks, right? Like the stock price is down. But like from a bones of ginkgo, 
us having the the capital resources we have right now puts us in an incredible position. So, yeah. so, so like you got to weigh that stuff, right? Totally. You know, like at the end of the day, what matters for everybody, our investors and employees, is that we get to a regime where cell engineering, programming cells is easy and fast and cheap. And Ginkgo's the utility that does that for everyone, right? Like if we get there, everybody's going to be good, right? Yeah. And so me having a lot more capital definitely increases the odds of that. Yeah, spacking the company in 2021 was both kind of a blessing and a curse, wasn't it? Because on the one hand, you got out into the public markets and raised a bunch of money. On the other hand, within probably a year of that, maybe not even, the public markets became very wary of capital intensive businesses and were starting to, well, everybody got destroyed. So it wasn't just capital intensive businesses. It's no fun, right? Like, like, and you feel, you know, you have real responsibility to investors and all that stuff. So like that part of it is like, that's like psychologically tough. I mentioned earlier that like, again, we have this buffer that we're very long-term minded. Like, again, like if you step back for a minute, you're like, well, boy, it would have not been great to be capital tight in this environment, would it? And so like the fact that we have the capital we have, like really shores us up. It means we can keep doing partnerships. We need to keep scaling the infrastructure. All that stuff is so good. And if you go back and look at the history of stuff like, now forget Amazon Web, but Amazon Consumer, people forget what it was like in 99, but it wasn't clear that there weren't going to be like 40 different Amazons. Pets.com, you know, Amazon was an investor in Pets.com. Everyone's like, oh, Pets.com was so crazy. Amazon itself was like, I think there's going to be a pet food vertical e-commerce site. So we better get a piece of it <laughs> so that hopefully they use some of our like backend stuff or something, right? Because they're, you know, like, like it was like not clear that you weren't going to have like a bunch of different e-commerce islands. And you know what cleaned all that up? 1999. Mm-hmm. 99 comes and it's like, whoosh, whoever doesn't have the scale economics, see you later. And, and who emerges on the other end of it? F***ing Amazon. It's, you know, blessing and a curse, right? Like it also does tighten around the strong in a market like this, which can be beneficial. Yeah. And going back to your early point about like people build companies, the talent is more unevenly distributed in that new world, meaning the companies that do survive the Amazons, the Coinbases of the world, then all of a sudden monopolize all the great talent instead of it being at 50 different places. Yeah, absolutely. You get people coming to it. You get customers coming to it. There's like a bunch of, uh, a bunch of benefits. But at the same time, like you have more risk of not being able to put together all the things you need to get to the next scale, right? Like that's what you're balancing. And it's a distraction, right? I mean, in general, it's crazy. Like you went out at a $23 billion valuation. It then shrunk down to call it $3 billion. Now in the last five days, it's up 35%. I mean, this is like, what are we living in? F***ing La La Land over here? It's like, this isn't GameStop, you know? Like this is obscene. Yeah, yeah. And not to mention... In the meantime, you have short sellers coming on top of your head, beating you from the outside in, which I had Aaron Levy on the show and he talk, he beat them and Elon and anyways. Just no- yeah, I'll give you my uncontroversial opinion on that too. The, the like markets need short sellers. There's like rationality to the whole thing. They're there for a reason. Like I'll be able to take the other side of a bet. It is just a huge amount of noise. That's the truly annoying part of it. Like it's just distracting. And I think the other thing that's like really fascinating to me is that Buffett, Warren Buffett, I think has done a really nice job teaching everybody, teaching public market retail investors about long-term value investing. A company like Coca-Cola, right? Coca-Cola's got 
great competitive moats and a great brand that no one else can copy and like on and on and on and distributions set up the right way and all these great things. And so like, that's a company, it's not going to disappear on you. And so it's a good like long-term value investor. Buffett's been invested in Coca-Cola forever. And so he spent a lot of time talking to people about this like long-term value. You'll notice that like, you don't hear a ton about that on CNBC. You don't hear a ton about long-term value, even from analysts. Analysts are mostly telling you about what they think is going to happen in the next quarter, not the 10 to 20 year prospects of Coca-Cola. Why is that? Well, how do all these people make money? So like analysts are part of banks. Banks make money on trades. Buffett doesn't do a lot of trades. Okay, guy buys something and sits on it for 10 years. The audience, the customers for like analysts are people that are basically betting. And by the way, nothing wrong with short-term investing. We also need that. Like every... This is the magic of capitalism, right? Like every part of the capital market has its place, right? Like you want someone who is staying tight on the quarterly report from Coca-Cola, but you also want someone who's trying to have a 10-year opinion on Coca-Cola. The trick is that the audience for analysts, the audience for the average financial show are short-term investors. So most of what you see just out in the ether is the short-term analysis of companies with rare exceptions. Like Buffett's annual letter is a pretty nice... Help, you te- help teach you about thinking long-term. But it's not really who pays the bills for the banks, and it's not who pays the bills for generally financial media, which wants eyeballs, which wants retail, and retail overwhelmingly, just by virtue of, of their economics, is short-term-minded. It's really impressive what Berkshire has done to really create. I've been out to the Buffett like show in Omaha and like gone and seen the whole thing. I highly recommend it. But it's a stadium full of people who are like retail investors. I mean, you're talking to these people, they're like, man, yeah, I invested 25 years ago. Like, like, like they've made fortunes on, on Berkshire. It's like normal, you know, it's everyday people doing it. That is thanks to like Buffett's like branding genius of talking to retail, not about the casino bet of the next quarter. And so I think that's amazing. There's a small number of people who talk about long-term, not value, but long-term growth. What's the next Tesla? What are these things that you bet on and you wait 10 to 15 years to see it turn into Tesla? That crew, like you get it in venture, but you don't get it in public markets that much that I see. There's, there's, there's exceptions. Uh, ARC is really good at this, like Kathy Woods Fund. They, they like think about this on a first principle basis. Funds like Bailey Gifford and Scotland do this well. But like, how do you really talk to people about things that are going to be big, but take time? And it's going to pay off for you, but it takes time. And that there's a little bit of a gap. And so like a lot of the discourse is short-term minded, not people confuse it. They think it's because the company's public. It's because the people talking make money talking to people that invest in the short term. That's why. And so you have to kind of go find these little islands of the people that invest in the long term and ask them what they think. But it's not what you get out of the average financial media for the economic incentive reasons I mentioned. But isn't this why someone like Elon just keeps SpaceX private for as long as he can? Maybe only in a capital market environment where you can get enough funding privately. I know he's like, oh, I shouldn't take Tesla bullshit. Like, like he could never have raised all the money he raised into Tesla if it hadn't been public. Tesla needed to be public, and now maybe Elon today could do it privately. But Elon, because of Elon, the Elon brand means that he can go raise billions of dollars privately. But rewind the clock twelve years, totally, and say, could Tesla raise as much as they did publicly? No effing way. Yeah, it's his retrospective rebuilt narrative. I think so, yeah. And it suits him today, which he's really good at, like rebuilding around what he needs to do for today. But I do think that Tesla would never have been Tesla without being public. 
And you look at who made a ton of money on Tesla. Kathy Wood, Bailey Gifford, the long-term growth people. Because they were like, oh my God, look at the numbers on the battery. You have to look at other stuff. You're like, let's look at the scale economic on batteries. Let's look at this. Okay. And then like a sanity check, does leadership actually know what's long-term? Like what are the real first principle long-term things? Oh, they do. Okay. I'm in. It's a, just a completely different game than can I predict Tesla's next quarter earnings. In 2012, that was meaningless. What was meaningful was what do the battery economics look like and I, do I think this guy can pull it off? And that's what it takes to, to do those kinds of investments. I think there's room for it, but it, it's just, it is a niche. Long-term growth on the public markets is, is a sub-fraction of the total companies. Most of the companies are mature, and in which case you're mostly betting on the next quarter. One of the areas that, at least in my world, which feels more and more bubbly the longer I talk to you, is that AI has seemed to permeate into many things, but where we're actually seeing it in the real world in practice is around structured pieces of text. This is why GitHub and Copilot are working so well because it's code that's structured very well. We just invested in a company called Harvey AI that does like a legal documentation, right? And synthesizes all that. Structured text, synthesize it, makes it makes a lot of sense to me. If you're using code as the analog to synthetic biology, there's got to be a level of excitement that you and your team think about and what that could mean for the future of your business. Yeah, I'd love to talk about this. All right, so DNA is code. That part's true, for sure. So let's talk about like what sucks about biology. Oh, first let's talk about what's awesome. Again, just to give you that Jurassic Park moment. You plant a seed in the ground, you add air, water, and sunlight, and a plant begins to self-assemble. No manufacturing facility. It is literally taking CO2 out of the air, stitching it together to make carbon molecules. It builds solar panels and the leaves to harvest its own energy from the sun and then begins doing advanced nanoscale manufacturing of things like fruits, you know, whatever, right? Like these, these things that if you go drill in atomically have more precise atomic devices than like NVIDIA can build. Okay. And then what do we do? We go and fucking eat it. Okay. I just want to be clear on like how ridiculous it is. Like what we do with the manufacturing infrastructure of biology on this planet is like a joke. <laughs> okay. So what? So there's the magic. That's why it's exciting. That's why we'd love to be able to program that plant to like make a microchip or something. Okay. Right. Like that would be great. It's capable. That's the point. All right. What sucks? Number one, we didn't design it. The best way to think about biology is like alien technology, freakishly powerful alien technology. It can do these incredible things that we have no, I have no idea how to self-assemble this Diet Coke can. Okay. Right. Like I got to build a big manufacturing plant. I, can't, I don't know how to grow anything, that, but biology is already doing it. Okay. So it's advanced alien technology. I can install new code so I can make it do new things, but because I didn't design it, I am terrible at writing that code. It's not my invention. And to give you an analogy from tech world, imagine like an asteroid landed and inside of it was a processor, computer processor. And it ran at 10 million times the efficiency of current NVIDIA chips. And it would take code. You could just feed zeros and ones in and it would do shit. But you had no idea of the architecture. No, da, da, da. your ability to interrogate it was pretty crap. What would you spend your time on? Would you start messing with that thing and trying to figure out how to make it do new stuff? I mean, you know it's so powerful. But you're going to have to struggle through this misery of reverse engineering how it works. That's the state of play for biology today. So the first thing we worked on at Ginkgo was, boy, you would be able to program that crazy alien computer a lot faster if you could quickly 
compile code into it and get debugging results out. So you had some sense of like what the hell it did by just giving it code and getting readouts of the code. Again, we live in the physical world in biology, not bits. So every time you compile code, remember that Jurassic flower project, you got to print a piece of DNA. It's chemical synthesis. Okay. So you have to do work in the lab to compile code. Hmm. It's fucking expensive. Okay. And you pay by the bit. You pay by the bit. So what we want to do is drop that cost. Okay. So that's what all the automation does. So now we can compile and debug cheaper than anywhere else. All right. So now we're, we're able to try a lot of code. That's half the challenge. Get it cheaper and cheaper and cheaper so you can collect more data per dollar. Then the next question is, do you understand anything of what's coming out? So I've just put new code into the cell. It didn't do the thing I wanted it to do. Big surprise. Just like your first version of your software probably is buggy. And I want to debug it. And I got a bunch of big debug readout, right? I got like a core dump on this fucking cell. Do I understand what the hell's going on? This is where like AI models can really be extremely beneficial in biology. They have a very close analogy to written language effectively. How do I work on this problem if I'm in a, in a modern large neural net world? Well, I start by training a foundation model on a bunch of DNA code out in nature. It's very analogous to the 10 terabytes of internet data that got pulled down to train GPT-4 or whatever, right? Like unsupervised learning on lots of English text. I'm going to do unsupervised learning on lots of DNA code. Think of a gene. It's read end to end letters. Okay. And you can do that same kind of like leave out and prediction stuff that you do for neural nets with English language. You could leave out parts of genes and ask the neural net to predict them. And so you can train up in an unsupervised way on lots of genomes, a foundation model that speaks DNA. And if you've heard, if you're familiar with like, if you've heard of AlphaFold, which was like a Google project three or four years mm -hmm. ago, that's effectively what they did on the public DNA data set called GenBank. And then they went and turned around and they used it to predict the folding of proteins. Like proteins make little shapes, these little nano machines. And it turned out they were able to do it better than any human protein engineers armed with their more traditional computational design tools. So they won this contest over human protein designers to predict the shape of a protein. My opinion, this is not surprising at all. And the reason is, let's think about the challenge we're giving the English language models. You mentioned the legal doc one. I want to have a, a AI model that writes legal contracts as well as the lawyer at Ropes and Gray. All right. Well, let's take that lawyer at Ropes and Gray. They've worked there for 15 years. They've been training, getting all this like know-how told to them by their fellow lawyers. The contracts were created by human beings, other lawyers. The English language that the contracts were written in also invented by human beings. So we have a whole stack of technology, law, invented by humans. And we're asking the computer neural net to compete with our wet neural net in this domain that's our domain. Now let's compare that to the alien technology of biology written in DNA code. Let me tell you, if I show you a bunch of DNA letters on the screen, you can't read them. You don't know what the DNA does. But guess what? Neither do the scientists at Ginkgo. We can't read it. It's not our language, right? It's like me asking you to write a poem in Chinese, okay, right? Mm -hmm. So we suck at that. We've built the best tools we can. I think we're better than anybody else at doing it. But in general, humans are not native speakers of DNA. These models which again, I'll emphasize the neural net was in no way designed to speak English. It's just a bunch of nodes and lines. It was able to see enough raw English language to learn English. If we give enough raw DNA language to these neural nets, they'll learn to speak DNA, except they should get way better than us. 
because we're not any good at it. And so the superhuman capabilities in bioengineering, I think are really going to get unlocked with AI. And we just did it. We did a $200 million plus deal with Google Cloud to basically build out these exact kind of foundation models. They're invested. We're getting milestones from them. We're paying them a bunch. We're building this infrastructure on the back of our ability to generate low cost data in our facilities. And also the fact that we have like a huge amount of genomes that we can use to train this thing that aren't in the public data set. I'm optimistic that this technology is going to be hugely important because we didn't invent biology. Like we actually need a neural net to come in and understand this stuff in a way we actually don't for law. Like we kind of want the neural nets just to save us some money. It's not like they're able to do law and we can't. They're going to be able to design biology and we can't. Does that make sense? Makes total sense. Super interesting. It's the coolest shit. I mean, I've been in this field since the inception, 2002. And I would say like, other than like the very beginning, some of the like low level stuff we figured out in SynBio and like abstracting things to the robotics, this is gonna be the next most important technology. So cool. Super interesting. And I actually think by the way, because of that, the application of AI and bio might end up being more important than in, in language. Totally. Unless language somehow turns into what Sam and everybody hopes it will, which is like some actual pathway to like general intelligence, in which case, yeah, sure, all bets are off if you get down that road. If language is really just about language and writing, humans are pretty good at that. It's going to be nice. It'll be good for search. It'll be good for office productivity. But like, it's not going to give us some crazy new capability. It's just going to make us more efficient. Whereas like on the bio side, this might be what lets us design biology, in which case we unlock the entire living world as a platform for manufacturing and everything else. You f***ing kidding me? Which would be a bigger impact of AI. And you think that's not a far-fetched future? I mean, traditional engineering isn't going to work. Like we can keep making it more efficient, but it's, it's not like going to make it trivial to design biology into whatever you want. So like, I think these things have a shot. We'll see. And the other beautiful thing is there's just a huge amount of books. What do these neural nets need? They need to learn from lots of books and writing, right? Like they need a lot of examples of stuff that is properly grammatical English or properly grammatical Chinese, right? Well, every plant, animal, microbe, bird out in nature is a book. We've read like none of them. Like none of that's been read in. Hmm. And the partnership with Google is to <laughs> power the computation behind all that work? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because it's just so compute intensive to go. It's just neural nets. You know, it should be similar at the end of the day. I think the scale will be similar to like what you'll do with English language. Right now we're data short. So like part of the challenge today is everyone's mined the hell out of the public data sets. And so the question is like, can you do more? Can we get more sequences from nature? Can we, we also have to then characterize the performance of these, you know, there's, there's just a lot of lab work to be done. And so that's part of like the gap, like why you aren't seeing it tomorrow is because there's also the need to like collect. We don't have the internet. It's out there. It just hasn't been read. There's a lot more genome sequencing that needs to happen and, and lab work, but why not? You know, like, I don't think it's crazy to do it. And if it starts to be obvious that it's going to work, it'll happen. Totally. I could go for hours with you, but I appreciate it. I really do. Yeah, dude, it's fun. Next time I want to come to, to the Ginkgo facilities. Yeah, come see the foundry. You'd really like it. It's like, it's pretty neat. I close all these things the same. The first, are you hiring? Yes. Are there any roles that you're hiring for that you want to shout out? Yeah. See, the AI stuff in particular is, is like a cool, you know, like if you're just a pure play AI nerd, you're going to want to go someplace else. But like, if you've got like a itch to scratch on the biology thing and you think like programming DNA is cool. I just think the assets we have at Ginkgo are world unique. So like we're going to get to try the really cool AI stuff in bio. If you're that kind of person, we'd love to talk to you. When you hear the word grit, what do you think of? 
having a long-term mindset, just a thing that you want to spend 20 years on. Jason Kelly, thank you. Thanks, Jubin. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to come back every Monday morning to listen to a new guest or go back into the archives when we've done more than 100 episodes. This podcast is a Kleiner Perkins production and the episode was edited by Eric Johnson from Lightning Pod. Thank you all.